and welcome to Alien Minute, the daily podcast where we are analyzing aliens in short, controlled bursts. I'm John Ingle. And I'm Tyler Smith, and today we'll be talking about Minute 63, which begins with Dietrich being raised towards the rafters and ends with Apone telling Vasquez to hold her fire, goddammit. Doesn't, he doesn't say it quite like that, but you know, <laughs> that's more curmudgeonly. But, uh, you have your own reading of it. That's fine. Exa- look, listeners of Battleship Pretension know that I won a certain award. I won Best Actor in the State of Missouri 17 years ago. And so, look, I have he has my... never stopped talking about it. <laughs> oh, I've heard him personally mention it at least 100 times. That might have been 101 right there. Well, and th- look, that's the thing. When you win Best Actor State of Missouri year 2000, it's, uh, it stays with you. People know about it. Uh, and so it's just a, I've been dining out on that for years. Uh, that and my nine podcast award nominations and no win uh, for more than one lesson. So I'm just saying I try to bring a little pedigree to this. Look, the point is I know what it is to act. And I think uh, I think Al Matthews does pretty good with his delivery of uh, hold your fire. God damn it. But I don't know. I feel like I, I could have done more with it. You know what I mean? That's that's just me. I don't know if Al Matthews ever won Best Actor State of Missouri, but uh, I know who did. Uh, it's me. I did. In the right, year well, 2000. So. This sounds like a listener's poll. We'll ask everyone out there, all the Alien Minute listeners, who read it better? Al Matthews <laughs> exactly. or Tyler Smith? And I'll, I'll make sure to remind them that you won Best Actor State of Missouri, what, 1999 or 2000? Uh, that's year 2000, yes. 2000, oh, turn of the century. That's right. Started off on a real good foot. That's the way the I look at it, yeah. I think they discontinued the, the award after I, after I won it. <laughs> well, they can't go any farther down or up, I mean, sorry. Oh. Excuse me. And look, the point here's the deal. I I played Henry II in the play The Lion in Winter. Uh, in the film, Peter O'Toole played that part and was nominated for Best Actor but didn't win. So, look, there's only one thing you can really get out of that fact, which is, and I don't say this lightly, but I do say it emphatically, I'm a better actor than Peter O'Toole. Tyler, I'm calling the police. <laughs> You were, you were holding this podcast hostage. <laughs> and that is uh, Kyle Anderson uh, from the Nerdist there uh, with his finger on his phone at the moment. <laughs> Dialing 9-1, just ready to hit that last one if Tyler says anything else. <laughs> just, just give me the reason, Smith. <laughs> well, Tyler, you are allowed to continue talking about aliens as we need to uh, talk about well, Minute 63 you, here. So just keep it on. Keep it there. All and right. We'll be fine. All right. All right. So, yeah. So we got Dietrich. uh, We got we got Dietrich headed up to the rafters here. Um, Yeah. Poor girl. I feel bad. And I do want to say R.I.P. to Frost. We didn't give him his proper uh, send off. We always have to make sure to check off the, um, you know, check off the old deceased uh, crew members as we get them. We did that with Alien. So uh, this is our first lost Marine. Rico Rico Frost, I believe is his name. So uh, goodbye, Rico. That is true. Um, and yeah, and he was not uh, he was not killed by an actual alien. Yeah. Um, and so that's something that I that I find interesting. And I don't remember. Uh, I don't know how much we can let people in. Uh, you know, see behind the curtain a little bit. But this is our second time trying to record this episode. There are some technical difficulties. Right. Um, and so I, I, I've lost track 
of what I've said in previous episodes versus the, this version of this episode. But uh, something that that I find interesting is is uh, how many of these Marines um, or how many of these characters are killed or injured by something that actually doesn't have to do with the aliens, but it has to do with their uh, their technology, their firepower, um, and just the fact that for them being in large numbers is uh, something of a liability when normally it would be a strength, but because of because of the enemy they're fighting and the way in which they're fighting them, uh, it actually is is a detriment to them. Yeah, for sure. That's definitely true. Yeah, Frost is like, once he gets handed the, the, the what amounts to Chekhov's bag of explosives, like you know that they're going to explode. He's basically like, if you've seen other like Vietnam movies, he's the minesweeper guy who's yeah. always like, it's the it's the worst job and he's almost always the first one to die and it's from a, a landmine probably one that they laid themselves like it's that it's that level of of dumb and we talked a lot about frost in the last episode but like the fact that he gets he gets his death is marginalized because we're focused on dietrich being pulled by the alien and she's you know uh shooting the the flamethrower out of you know reaction to being grabbed by this thing that she doesn't even see um and it's uh it's a it's a really unfortunate death and it's like but it's one that like you you kind of can see coming um the other ones that happen immediately following his death and like and Dietrich being pulled up you you don't necessarily know what's going to happen but we have basically four I mean uh whether they are actually dead and you know it's uh, Dietrich is as, as far as we know doesn't actually die until the planet explodes right or the ship or whatever they're on um uh, but um, we basically lose five characters in the span of two minutes. Yeah, which is and there and nuts. there aren't that many in there. I mean, when you realize that of of all the Marines that go in, only three come out. Like of this particular uh, instance, only uh, Hicks, Hudson, and Vasquez make it out. Drake almost does, but not quite. Um, and yeah, uh, so shortly after Frost goes. Uh, the bag explodes and then Crow is killed and then, uh, and Wurzbaski is thrown clear and while uh, Hicks is checking on Crow, he hears Wurzbaski scream and then is just gone and disappears. And so in rapid succession, uh, people die. And I did want to mention something real quick. This is, uh, this speaks to some of my history with the film. So I first saw the film and I'm going to say 1989. I was seven years old. Uh, it might've been 90, but I think it was right around there. My friend Jeff, uh, for his birthday party, he had it on video. And so we all watched it together, uh, and just absolutely loved it. And so we started playing aliens on the playground. Uh, which with each of us being a different character. And I remember who everybody was. There was, uh, so I was Drake. Uh, my friend Chris was Hudson. My friend Jeff was Hicks. My friend Jared was Bishop. And then I had a friend named Ryan. And when we, and he didn't play, us, play with us that often, but when he did, we asked which Marine he wanted to be. And he, I feel like this speaks volumes that I didn't realize at the time. He wanted to be Crow. Crow is a complete non-entity. And I don't mean to, it's not a function of the actor. It's not a bad performance. It's just a not, he's there to just be a body uh, to 
pad out the Marines numbers and then just have one more person dead uh, at the beginning. And that any kid would say, you know, who I want to be is Crow is just (laughs) astonishing to me. Um, And I feel like had I had I really been aware at the moment of what he was saying, I feel I would like I would have said, Ryan, you don't get to be my friend anymore. In fact, I think that maybe we should call the principal and have you sent to the counselor because you need a higher opinion of yourself. Uh, this is <laughs> who, who you, you want to be. I want to be the guy who falls down and gets blown up. <laughs> <laughs> wow. It's amazing to me that you guys would really have, I guess you guys must have really paid attention to the names on the, on the screens or yeah. listened really closely. Cause I, I watched this movie a lot of times before I really realized any of those other characters' names. Like they were just kind of flying around, and in the VHS era, I think it was really hard to see uh, maybe the names on the screens. I don't know, or I just wasn't paying attention because I didn't even realize there was a guy named <laughs> Weirsbowski when yeah. I was young. I remember thinking that Hicks was asking, "Where's Bowski?" That, uh, <laughs> where is he? That's what I. Where thought. is Bowski? Yeah. And yeah. So. Uh, it's amazing that you that you, anybody knew there was a guy named Crow in the movie at all. Aliens, uh, when I was a kid, it was the first instance. Um, David has said this at uh, over at Battleship Pretension. He has mentioned that uh, I have a surprisingly good memory for character names, which I thought everybody did, but I guess that's not the case. And Aliens is probably the first instance of of me knowing the name of every uh, basically every character. Um, I say basically. I knew the name of every character. Now, that's not – I'm not bragging because how could anybody ever brag about that? Uh, but it's – it was weird because I just uh, – for some reason, the various names and just the film as an ensemble made such an impression on me that uh, I even remembered the name of – you know, the name Spunkmeyer and and uh, although that one doesn't exactly fade from memory. Um, and then <laughs> Crow and Wersbaski and, and Pharaoh and that sort of thing. So uh, just, yeah, as a kid, I really loved this film and I felt I should remember everybody's name. And I even took the time to uh, look up certain cast members and that sort of thing. I want to wow. talk a little bit about Wersbaski because I could not visually tell you which one he is. I think he's the one who comes over and looks at something and then runs away. And then we never see what happens to him. But his name, and specifically Michael Bean shouting his name four times in the course of this minute, has it's seared into my brain from such a, a young age. And so I was really excited when I realized uh, that during my period of time on this podcast, I was going to get to talk about that. Because <laughs> what a son of a bitch James Cameron is for making a character's name that and then making another character shout it. Like, yeah, <laughs> that's so mean, like, you know, like it's it's almost as bad as like if somebody had a really long and ridiculous, uh, like hyphenated name or something like that. And it's like, I'm going to make a character shout it a few times. Um, uh, and it, it just it starts to lose its like meaning. I remember there's a Mystery Science Theater episode uh, where they watch the movie Squirm. And there's uh, a character in it named Mr. Beardsley, who is a completely uninteresting and not important character. But 
he goes missing because he's been attacked by worms. It's a weird movie. And one of the lead characters walks around for like a full five minutes and just keeps shouting Mr. Beardsley over and over and over <laughs> again. And it's just like, why are we giving so much lip service to this guy who doesn't matter? And yeah. I feel the same way about Wearsbowski. It's like he's just he's just cannon fodder. And yet Hicks treats him like like I like to the, the think that the the past life of Hicks and Wearsbowski is that they're like they've been friends since the you know since boot camp and they've just been hanging out forever and like uh Hicks in his quiet moments Hicks is the most sad that he doesn't get to see Wearsbowski anymore <laughs> well I was just thinking about the same thing I was like what was there something going on with Hicks and Wearsbowski like are they old pals and I was thinking well they don't sit together at the in the cafeteria because Hicks is sitting with Frost and uh Spunkmeyer at the cafeteria I'm like hmm I it would have been funny had they been sitting next to each other. You might deduce that, oh, yeah, they were old pals. That's why Hicks is so upset about this. I genuinely but, get the feeling that Hicks and Frost were friends. Like That um, does come across, absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah, that is uh, that is unfortunate. But I do think that him shouting, yeah, it's a ridiculous name. Where's Basque? Uh, apologies to any listeners who have that name, but of course you don't have that name. Nobody <laughs> has that name. And if you did, um, you changed it long ago. <laughs> exactly. Uh, ironically to Crow. But uh, it's... <laughs> I think the idea that Hicks, a character that we do have some sense of, um, although he hasn't fully emerged like Hudson and Vasquez has anyway, but the fact that a character we know values this guy to such a degree that he is uh, frightened and angry and alarmed that he is hearing him scream off in the distance, um, it kind of lets us know in kind of a roundabout way that all of these guys were important. We might not know who all of they are, who all of them are, but they know who they are, and uh, and yeah, we can we can joke about the friendship that Hicks might have had with uh, Wierzbowski, but um, but it does indicate that every single Marine that dies is an important part of the unit, and the unit is now lesser because they have died. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good. I point, mean, it does. And you were talking uh, in this episode, in the last episode, about how it's the group of them that seems so formidable and then it actually is what leads them to uh to their downfall essentially um but it's it's only in the numbers and it's like within the group we know who are the main character marines and the ones who are the less important ones and uh and as we talked about two episodes ago frost is the character that sort of seems like it could he could be a main character one but uh a lack and alas he is not um uh but but it they are there to illustrate that we had a bunch of people and now we don't <laughs> and uh and and, and you yeah, know as much as i make fun of the naming conventions like it is it is kind of interesting to see like the, the other the characters who are left realize that they've been decimated um or have decimated actually means 10 percent of your crew is gone so it means a lot less people than we think it is <laughs> But yeah, by the end of it, and it's and you know with uh, Drake, which is not in this minute or even this week, that you you start to be like literally anybody can go at this point because we've lost characters who we thought were probably going to be main characters, um, uh, and and yeah, I mean, but you do need those cannon fodder characters just so that we know there's a problem, <laughs> and I think that like definitely Dietrich is one of those characters, and Crone Wersbowski just happened to be that as well. Yeah, I think the only Marine that you might be pretty sure, Hicks is probably the only one in, if you're a 1987, 1986 moviegoer, you might know him. 
whether, had it been James Remar who was originally cast or Michael Bean, you might have you might have gone, okay, this guy's probably not going to get killed because I recognize this guy. I saw the Terminator or I saw any of the number of James Remar movies, Walter Hill movies or whatever. But um, yeah, everybody that's not in that APC could go. You're right, and that's that's good. We need that. That right here in this moment, we need to be very uncertain about the fate of all these people and having them get taken out so fast does a little bit of that having certain people get taken out that quickly does that and it's good it's good again good for escalating tension and making us panic a little bit with them and you know something else that occurred to me about the the rapid death of of these characters um you know a big element of the first film is they're killed one by one this immediately goes against that it is not one by one. They they might die in a specific order, but very few make the very few of them make it out of this scene. But then when you think about it, uh, the very the absolute very first inter- physical interaction with an alien takes Dietrich out of commission, kills Frost, and then Crow, and then where's Basky? Like dying one by one is not how this is going to look. Uh, it is going to happen quickly, and it's going to happen. Um, pretty comprehensively yeah and again that that feels a little bit more like vietnam right where yeah you know you, you've watched your vietnam movies you you're traipsing through the the jungle and when you get hit when when they when the fire starts to come in it usually takes a few guys out at once and that's that's war that's the reality of it it's not an individual effort for one thing so why would you spend you know time like systematically killing people off? You need to have that impact be there that this is sudden and it can be uh, like you said dec- uh, decimating. Like it can it can definitely knock out a bunch of people real fast, and then you find yourself in a in a bad spot. And we want that as audience members. We want to be thrown in with them. And I think if you're killing a guy here and a guy there, we're able to breathe a little bit too much, you know. So it's nice to get this big impactful gut punch with taking these people out all at once. Mm-hmm. Um, I did want to mention uh, to move towards the, the end of, of this minute where, uh, you know, people are dying and then Vasquez and Drake decide, okay, enough of this, not firing. Uh, I'm tired of not firing my ridiculous weapon. Uh, and so Vasquez <laughs> yells out, let's rock. And what, one thing that I like is that, the lack of music in that particular instance, uh, and then everything that's come before in, in almost any other action movie, somebody yelling, let's rock. And then they start shooting would be seen as triumphant. It doesn't feel like that here. It feels like she's trying to kind of get herself going. Uh, and it's not, I don't know to me when I watch that, it feels very futile. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. when, when she and Drake start shooting in, in all directions, it's certainly, yeah, they can do a lot of damage, but it seems very unfocused. It's after several people have just died. It is not, you know, in what, cause we've been seeing these giant guns. And so it's like, okay, now it's these guns against the aliens in almost any other circumstance. It would feel like things are really, are really getting going, but now it just seems so chaotic and messy and, and as I said, uh, and desperate and futile. Um, so her, her saying let's rock. And then the two of them starting to, to fire around, 
um, somehow it actually seems that oddly enough to me underlines the fact that the Marines are losing. It does not strike me as, oh, things are about to change because now Drake and Vasquez are getting in on the action. It doesn't feel like that at all to me. It feels like the last gasp of this unit before more of them are killed and then, if not all of them. Mm. Yeah, I think, you know, they don't give you, Cameron and, and Ray Lovejoy with the editing here, don't give you an instant to think that they might be winning here, that this might not be a mistake. I mean, I've always it feels like a mistake. Because like, well, God, we know what these aliens are made of. Literally, yeah. uh, we don't want you really doing this. And we immediately, while we're not on Gorman's side, really, we do agree with his decision to have them, you know, uh, stow their arms. Right? We we know that it was it's a mistake. Now, his big mistake is not telling them why. We talked about yeah. that last week. It's like, why the hell didn't you tell them why? Like if if you tell them that it might cause a nuclear explosion, they might not do it. So the but but instead of getting this moment, we're like, yeah, they're firing their weapons finally. It, it's cuts right to Gorman going like, God damn it! I said don't fire these, and we're kind of like, yeah, don't fire those. We don't think this is a good idea either. So I think that plays into it a little bit. But you're right; it's kind of a, a an interesting moment. It almost kind of subverts what we expect from action movies. Yeah, to have her say this ultra action movie line in the middle of all this. And it just kind of falls flat because you're like, no, this you're not rocking right now at all. This is bad. Yeah. It yeah. sort of, it, it subverts the, the semblance. Cause up to this point, every, everybody's been like, not by the book necessarily, but it's like, there's a chain of command and you follow it. Even if you don't agree with it, but whatever, but like, um, Apone is completely, a. a a useless entity in this whole scene until, um, spoilers, <laughs> he gets killed. Um, or, or taken at the very least. And uh, he's not doing anything. Like, he's just kind of looking around being like, stop it, like, quit firing. And, like, he's trying to relay things to Gorman, who is completely lost. And so this just it, her sh- shouting, let's rock, and them firing. That's her being like, all right, we're, we're doing this. This is what I know how to do. And it just it just shows that they have completely already, like, the, the chain of command is broken down and the, like, the laws of... Um, you know what this unit is supposed to be doing they just got through basically saying don't fire your guns only use flamethrowers and they're just like nah (laughs) because because that's all they know how to do and it's just like it's chaos at this point and uh so i'm actually looking at it right now and you don't even know if they're hitting anything oh no at all yeah and they probably aren't no i mean maybe they're laying down that suppressing fire (laughs) Yeah, that's supposed to be the idea, but um, at the at the risk of you know, again, they if only they knew what they were risking by doing that. But you know, we talked about that a lot last week. So they're just yeah, it's so pointless. But again, they're not getting anything given to them to do. Like if the chain of command, if Gorman were more decisive, yeah, he's not and, telling them to do anything. He's telling them to no. stop doing a thing that they think yeah. was going to work. And of course, that's because he has no idea. He's yeah. completely incompetent. Right. This he's is not in the manual. This wasn't in the simulation. Yeah. So he's going to be lost. And there he is looking all sickly pale like we talked about. He looks like he's yeah. about to hurl all over his little uh, console there. Yeah. So uh, it's just it looks a, like he has tuberculosis. Yeah, it does. Yeah. It looks, he's, yeah, he's looking a little, uh, a little like Doc Holliday in Tombstone there. <laughs> yeah. Sure. I think it might be the same makeup. <laughs> might be. <laughs> I do want to go back. We we kind of flew past it, uh, which is fine. But I do want to go back and point out that we do get a big James Horner uh, moment 
early when the uh, right before the ammo bag blows up. And I'd like to bring that up because he's kind of been laying low for so much of this movie. And right here we get an, an interesting juxtaposition of ideas where we have big martial music coming from James Horner. It's filling our ears. It's creating this big militaristic action movie kind of moment while Cameron uh, ramps down the speed of the action to slow-mo. So when they're trying to get to this bag that, like we've talked about, is this ticking time bomb, and now it's on fire, <laughs> literally the the wick is lit, it's about to blow, he's not allowing them to get to it, you know? So he's he's slowed it down, and we're frustratingly like watching them, and we're wishing they could get to it, and we want to get them to just knock that thing off of the platform or whatever. But um, at the same time, the music's ramped up and making us feel anxiety as if we're watching a high-paced action scene. So I think that's a nice moment. It's throwing us completely off, and it's making us feel a little helpless, and it's a little bit nightmarish. It's even kind of echoing back to Ripley's Nightmare earlier in the movie that's also in slow motion. Yeah, yeah, I think that's, I think that's actually that's very interesting. And it, and it does... You know, I was talking with my with my friend the other day that I don't consider myself much of a Cameron fan, but the thing, at the same time... That's usually from a writing standpoint. Like, I, it's it's worth noting that when his movies are nominated for for Oscars, they're never nominated for screenplay, um, because he's not necessarily the strongest writer of dialogue. Uh, he tends to think in terms of character archetypes and such. But in larger storytelling terms, I think he's a he's very strong. Like in the broadest sense of of screenwriting, I think he's very strong. But then as a filmmaker, his instincts are right on. Like he he does seem to understand um, what moments because yeah it does drop to like you said the the wick has been the fuse has been lit and it's just a matter of time before this other big thing that actually has nothing to do with the aliens is is about to to kill somebody um, and he chooses that moment to go to go slow motion and I think it's because yes we've just seen two characters effectively get killed. Um, but things are about to get worse because now we're about to get a big thing that's going to happen and throw everything into chaos. Um, and he just seems to instinctively know that 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 even though Crow, you know, Crow's about to die and then where's Baskey characters that aren't that important. Um, but he it seems to instinctively know that this explosion, because it also means that nobody can go and grab their ammunition. Um that this explosion is going to be a key moment in the battle from here on. So to draw that out and make it more tense and, and a, a, a pivotal moment, I think is, is a good instinct. Yeah. It's, it's interesting that you point that out. Cause I think in future, we won't go into it now, but in future minutes, there are other things that uh, serve a similar purpose where the story changes because certain things happen and, and they're always punctuated like in a nice way, in some stylistic way. And so not only do you get that from a storytelling standpoint, it's not, not only is it on paper, okay, things are changing for these characters here, but we get it viscerally and we get it visually and we get, we're getting it cinematically, I guess is what I'm really saying. And that's what he's the strongest. You're right. Totally. He's strongest at putting the image on the screen and making the story pop that way. And uh, I will say though, Tyler, if you've never read the script for aliens, it's actually a pretty fun read. He's actually oh, pretty sure. decent at writing the action and the descriptions of the world building. And then the, the dialogue is like, okay, <laughs> it's a little on the nose or a little <laughs> corny, but uh, it's a fun read. That. 
That sounds about right. I can't say I've ever read any of his other scripts, so uh, I might I might go down that rabbit hole a little bit and see, just to see if he's not he's a pretty good writer as far as writing a screenplay and making it entertaining to read. But no, I don't think anyone's going to argue that he's a good writer of dialogue. So uh, maybe someone out there. We'll see. We'll look at the Facebook page tomorrow and see. And is this the? I don't know if it's this minute or the next when we get uh, a pwn. Uh, trying to kind of locate people. And at one point he says, Crow, sound off. Yeah. You know, not knowing that Crow is dead. Yeah, I don't remember if that's this minute or not. Actually, Actually I think it's the next minute. Okay, I think okay. it is. So. Because he, right now he's just trying to get a hold of, or, or, yeah, I think this minute ends with Gorman starting to just kind of spit um, procedure at him like he's known to do. You know, he's just, re- okay, yeah, paragraph whatever from the manual says that we should lay down a suppressing fire, you know, and that's kind of what he's doing. So that's where we end with a minute. I think it's the next minute that he starts calling out names. So, And if it's not and we're wrong, so it's fine. We can talk you know about what? the next minute anyway. I just watched the beginning of the next minute, and it must be this minute that he does it. <laughs> okay, there you okay, go. So it's this minute that he does it. Yeah, but yeah, anyway, yeah, so he's calling out, and it's like, nah, he's gone. Yeah, and it's and the fact that he doesn't know that that we know that before he does, and Apone is a guy who is extremely capable, and he does know what's going on, and he has and he does have a close relationship with the Marines, and so there's this. I think it really adds to the to the futility that this guy who is an authority and is and is uh, a vital part of the chain of command and of this unit that he doesn't know that one of these characters is dead, um, which I don't know. It's again, that's, that is a storytelling, maybe not necessarily a, a, uh, dialogue element, but that is a, a key storing storytelling component that shows us how chaotic things have gotten when a pwn does not understand, uh, does not know who's dead and who's alive. That lets us know that, okay, this is, this has gotten, uh, you know, Gorman might not know what's going on, but Apone is there, and for him to not know, that means that things are very serious now. Well, that's the thing, though, right? Gorman does know that Crow's gone, right? But he and, also and can't he should see be relaying there. Yeah, he should be relaying that. I mean, he sees their vitals when they disappear, right? So, yeah. uh, he should be relaying that. So he's adding to the chaos with his incompetence again. Like he should be rela- the first person that should be hearing about who's gotten killed is Apone, right? He's the one yeah. that's on the scene, and it's his people. So. Yeah, it's just a clusterfuck, I guess. That's the best way to put it. The whole thing is a mess because the chain of command is all broken because the head is of it is is so incompetent. And how would Apone know when there's so much chaos going on? So, yeah, yeah. it's just a mess. All right. Well, you guys ready to move on to Minute 64? Yeah, let's, let's do it. it. All right. Uh, Kyle, why don't you remind everyone where they can find you online? On Twitter at Functional Nerd. On Nerdist.com, you can read everything I write. Uh, I do the Doctor Who, the Writer's Room podcast, and the Classic Horrorcast podcast, and listen and read. And Tyler? You can find me at BattleshipPretension.com. You can also find me at MoreThanOneLesson.com. You can uh, check out my book, Worth Watching, at WorthWatchingBook.com. And it occurs to me, I I forgot to mention this, so uh, September 23rd, there is a a comic con- a comics convention that I will specify. It is Christian oriented, but I've been a part of it for the last few years, uh, and I really like it. It is a, a good time, and I'm going to be programming and moderating a panel 
called uh, Screaming in Space, the Alien series. So I'm going to get to talk about uh, the entire Alien series. Uh, I probably will leave out Prometheus and Covenant, if I'm being honest. And um, so, yeah, anybody who is in the area of Los Angeles, or more specifically La Mirada, if you're interested, uh, you can come out and uh, come to that panel. And you don't necessarily have to stay for the rest of the convention, but, uh, but you can do that if you want to hear more about this. All right, cool. All right, well, you can find us at AlienMinute.com, on Instagram at AlienMinutePodcast, or on Twitter at AlienMinutePod. All right, we'll see you tomorrow for minute number 64.